0: That reading from the Bible is in uh, the prophecy of Jonah, and we're reading two chapters, chapters three and four of Jonah, book of Jonah, and that's on page 929 in the church Bible. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals?
1: Thank you so much, Ken. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Please keep that passage open. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying this little mini series, The Gospel and the City. Uh, I personally am really grateful to um, Chris Webb for sharing the vision for this uh, short series. Uh, We were uh, in communication this week just saying, actually, we think we could have gone further. And he sent me a little uh, link to a podcast called The Surprise of the City. So I don't know, uh, we'll leave that for a surprise, but we may come back to it at some point uh, in the future. But I've really certainly enjoyed. preaching um, a couple um, Jonah twenty twenty nine and this one here today Um, and I want us to to spend a moment now in quiet as we come to what I think is a really significant chapter of scripture Uh, it is anyway but I think it's maybe significant for us at this juncture in our church life so I want us to have just a moment of quiet in God's presence and then I'm going to lead us in a prayer that we would hear the voice of God this morning as we come under the authority together of Jonah chapter 4 let's have a moment of quiet The Lord says through his prophet Jeremiah, "Let the prophet who has a dream recount the dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For What a straw to do with grain, declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces? Father, thank you for this passage of scripture that we have before us today, and Lord, we come together as a church under its authority. We're not over it, Lord, we're under it. Lord, you know that you have put a fire in my heart this week as I've been thinking about this passage and what you want to say to us as a church. Oh Lord, I pray that as you enable me to preach what you have given me. That, Lord, that fire will spread among us and that you will lighten up our passion for Jesus. Lighten up, Lord God, our commitment to share the glorious gospel with those who are dead in sin and do not know you or have hope in this world or for the next. Meet with us, we pray, Lord, in these moments. For the Lord Jesus' glory, we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever considered that your first reaction to wrongdoing reveals a lot about how you view God. We tend to react to wrongdoing in one of two ways, with various nuances, of course. So either judgment, disgust, anger, condemnation, or grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion. And we tend, of course, to react with much more grace, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, when it's our own wrongdoing, and much less when it's that of others. Such is our fallen human nature. As a driver cuts me up on the motorway or pushes into a queue, provokes instant outrage. But I conveniently forget times when I've walked over others or ignored their feelings in order to get where I want to be. I rejoice to hear about a politician being sacked or having to resign because of bullying or making racist remarks. But I have to happily overlook my own unkind words or aggressive behavior to my spouse, to my kids, to my Christian brothers and sisters, my colleagues, or when I've treated someone differently because of their skin color or social background. The thief, the burglar, the person caught in a financial scandal, well, they get what's coming to them, don't they? But me, fiddling my expenses? Committing benefit fraud? Well, it's not on the same level, is it? The rapist or sexual predator? They deserve everything they get. Put them in prison, throw away the key. But looking at pornography? secret affair? Casual hookups for sex? Why is there harm in that? I mean, everybody's doing it nowadays. And at least I'm nowhere near as bad as that person. Here's a question, though. What do you think is God's first reaction to wrongdoing? Judgment? Disgust? Anger? Harsh condemnation? Or grace? Mercy? Forgiveness? Compassion? Does he have one reaction to the obviously wicked, outward, scandalous, outrageous sins, but a different reaction to the more respectable, hidden sins, pride, greed, envy, hatred, anger, love of money, deceit, unforgiveness, bitterness, and so on. My first reaction to wrongdoing reveals a lot about my understanding of the nature of God. As we look at Jonah 4 together, we're given a window into the heart of God's prophet and his personal view of God. And it's not that he misunderstood the nature of God. No, his theology is good. He prays, end of verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That is straight out of the book of Exodus. It's a solid prayer theologically. Uh, there's an old Peanuts cartoon strip where Lucy and Linus are both staring out of the window and they're watching it rain. And uh, Lucy's just kind of overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the storm and it impresses. She said, Boy, look at it pour! What if it floods the whole earth? It won't, Linus said. In Genesis 9, God promised. Noah that will never happen again. And the sign of that is the rainbow. Turning back to the window, big smile on her face. Lucy says, you've taken a great load off my mind. Linus replies, sound theology tends to do that. So how come then? Jonah's sound theology, expressed so eloquently in his prayer, takes nothing off his mind. No, it makes him angry. Did you notice how references to Jonah's anger dominate chapter 4? Only 11 verses, but four references to Jonah's anger. He's not even angry about wrongdoing or injustice. He's angry because God shows compassion. Because he relents, literally is moved by compassion and pity to turn from his fierce anger after the Ninevites turn from their evil ways. What a strange, strange paradox. God relents from his fierce anger, but his prophet Jonah, whose very words acted as the catalyst to repentance, he's now consumed by anger. NRV doesn't help us really in verse 1 because it misses the force of the Hebrew. This is what it really is, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became hot with anger. He burned with anger. So what is going on? I mean, if I went out later and started preaching outside West Key Shopping Center and I, I, I preached boldly and 120,000 people came to faith, broken by God's word. They rush back home. They, they, they grab their funeral. They refuse to eat or drink anything. They don't even feed their pets. When people don't feed their pets, this is big. We know that. And 120,000 of them turn from their evil ways. I'd be screaming, wow, revival, revival. That's half the population of Southampton, 120,000 people. So what is going on in Jonah chapter 4? Well, as the Lord has been teaching us quite a lot, I think, recently, it is all to do with the heart. Jonah's theology is spot on. He knows his Bible. He can even pray it. But his theology is not impacting his heart in the way that God desires. Because Jonah does not like the implications of his theology. He's uneasy about where this knowledge of God's grace, compassion, slowness to anger, where it's all leading. This abounding love, where's it leading? He knows what God is like, but he doesn't like God's way of being God. Not if that means that he's a gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding love for those wicked Ninevites out there. No, Lord. God forbid. Jonah is struggling with this idea that the God he worships is by nature a gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love God for everybody If you want it in New Testament terms, this is Jonah's struggle. He he can't accept that Romans 1 verse 16, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone. Everyone who believes. No exceptions, no exemptions, no exclusions. No one too far gone. No one beyond the pale. No background too godless. No one beyond the reach of a loving father in heaven whose heart grieves over every single person in this city who is not yet in a relationship with him and you know it is important that we read and understand Jonah 4 through the lens of the gospel because Romans 15 verse 4 everything that was written in the past including the book of Jonah was written to teach us that is us Christians so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope So we need to understand that Jonah 4 is written actually for us so that we can have insurance and so that we can be provided with encouragement so that we have hope. Isn't that what we need daily? I do. Can I say for anyone here this morning or online who is not yet a Christian, I'm so, so glad that you're here today. Here listening to the living word of the living God that is more powerful and effective than I think any of us begin to realize. Because you see, Jonah chapter 4 is a signpost to the one who can give you the hope that you long for. Hope that the whole world searches for and strives for but just always seems to slip through our hands. So with this Jesus focus in mind, let me draw out three implications for us today. Three things to keep central as we seek to love this great city of Southampton and the quarter of a million people or so who call it home. Firstly, be full of grace and truth to everyone. Be full of grace and truth to everyone. We've already seen that Jonah gets who God is. He knows the one who reveals himself to Moses, Exodus 34, as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And this God is in an unrelenting passionate desire to forgive wickedness and secure eternal hope for us he steps into this world in human form he's given the name jesus which means god is salvation or god saves it's a clear neon sign isn't it god saves through jesus the one described by the apostle john as being full of grace and truth now because we have finite minds it's very hard for us to grasp this idea of something being full of two things very difficult. But imagine my fridge at home. We heard about a pizza, I think, last week, so we're going to do fridge at home today. Imagine my fridge at home, and I tell you my fridge at home is full of drink and food. Okay? It's not, actually, but that's just bad planning on my part. Imagine it is, though. You would expect, wouldn't you, if you opened my fridge, that it would be sort of packed full of a combination of food and drink, wouldn't you? So you're not going to expect it to be full of food and full of drink, too. That's just... Impossible, that's against the law of physics. Forget that image. Because Jesus is literally, and when I say literally, I do mean literally. You know how sometimes people say, I literally died of laughter. Well, no you didn't, because you're literally standing in front of me. Jesus is literally, literally full of grace and truth. Not a 50-50 split. It's not a blend. Full of grace and truth. Grace to the max, truth to the max. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now you might be thinking, well, okay, yes, I'll accept that's true of Jesus then, but it's not true of me. You're telling me to to, to be full of grace and truth. I'm not God. I can't be like that. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus for forgiveness of your wrongdoing, for eternal life, the one in whom all the fullness of the deity lives now dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. So I am simply saying, brothers and sisters, be who you are in Christ. The Spirit of Christ is set up home within you permanently. And that's true for those who may be here this morning who have fallen far, far away. The Spirit of God is still in there, trying to call you back to him. And he wants us to be vessels. Vessels for his fullness of grace and truth to flow through us and to impact the people of Southampton, those who right now are without God and without hope in the world. So wherever you are tomorrow morning and for the rest of this week at home or in your student residence, the school, college, university, work out, shopping, interacting with others online, please pray, Father in heaven, may the spirit of Jesus within me enable me to be a minister. We're all ministers of grace and truth to those around me. Make me a channel through which the fullness of your grace and truth can flow out to lost people without hope. Let me just give you a little example of how this can work. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I go into Woodlands Community College on Mondays to help Nine pupils with their reading. It's the highlight of my week. And I have a sense that since I said that, some of you may be been praying for Woodlands and for me. We certainly prayed last week at the East Prayer Breakfast. And then this last Monday, I went to the school and I, I prayed a very short prayer before I got out of the car. Something like, Father, please, may I overflow with hope today by the power of the Holy Spirit. May I be full of grace and truth. And may it impact the teachers, the pupils. Amen. And that was it. Simple as that. And from the moment I went into the school, there was something tangibly but mysteriously different. I always get a very friendly smile from Sarah at the reception. But this time. There was an extra warmth as she... Grabs my visitor's badge. We have a little chat. We exchange a laugh. Linda, the librarian, greets me more cheerfully than usual, starts to ask with genuine interest about Above Bar Church, what my role is. All the pupils who read with me are unusually keen and chatty. But there's one boy that I've never read before, never read with before, and he's misbehaving in the library. So his teacher says, Right, go and read with Sir. I get called Sir in, in school. <laughs> I quite like that, actually. I could get used to it. No, no. I, I don't want to be called Sir. But uh, this boy, I won't name him, but this boy, he's clearly reluctant. So he kind of gets up and takes the long way round, The furthest route to me, a bit of swagger for his mates. Doesn't want to look, doesn't want to look like he's in, in, at all interested in reading. And he sits down, and he reads brilliantly. He's the best reader in the class. And I tell him at the end, you read brilliantly. And he turned to me and he looked straight in my eyes. And the whatever face just dropped. And he smiled. And he said, oh, thank you. Now you may say, oh, that's not a gospel conversation. It is. That's the power of the gospel at work. It's grace and truth. I was speaking truth. I wasn't flattering the guy. He read brilliantly. A little word of encouragement was all it took. This sort of teenage boy wanted to be anywhere else but school. So wherever you go this week, brothers and sisters, go prayerfully. Ask the Lord that he would make you overflow supernaturally with grace and truth. And you know one joyful, random act of kindness, it may well be the catalyst that eventually leads to somebody asking you for a reason for the hope that you have. Which may then lead to them putting their trust in Jesus. But secondly... Be ready for God to transform your anger into grace. What are we to make of this strange account of the leafy plant, the worm, and the scorching east wind? Well, whenever you're reading the Bible for yourselves, or you're looking at it in a home group, it can help to look for a couple of things. Structural markers, firstly, and repetition. Because often these are a key, especially in the Old Testament, a key that can unlock meaning and application. And in verses 4 to 9, we're really helped because we have both. We've got structural markers and we've got repetition. So I want you to notice firstly how this little section begins and ends with God asking Jonah the same question. Verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? That is about me not destroying the Ninevites. And then verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And then between these two bookends... God graciously gives his furiously angry prophet a one-to-one practical tutorial. Aim of the lesson? To shine a light, very tenderly and gently, on Jonah's anger, and to challenge it and transform it to grace. Notice, although Jonah is angry, God does not react angrily. He treats him according to his unchanging nature. Grace, compassion, slowness to anger, abounding in love. So the very thing Jonah wants to deny the Ninevites, the Lord lavishes on him. Isn't that amazing? He also exercises patient, tender, loving, fatherly discipline, just as he does with all those of us who trust in Jesus today. You can read about that in Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 13. Worth looking at. See how our loving Father disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, says Hebrews 12, verse 11, but painful. Later on, though, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. And then secondly, notice the repetition of that phrase, the Lord provided. Look, look at it with me. Verse 6, the Lord God provided a leafy plant, as shade for Jonah. And Jonah's absolutely thrilled about the plant. But verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And the connection between all three events is that the Lord provided each one. Provided what Jonah thought was wonderful, made his life pleasant, comfortable. But he also provided what Jonah found painful and distressing, even to the point of wanting to die. But in all of it, all of it, God is graciously working to transform his reluctant, angry prophet into a man who is not only full of truth, but full of grace. Grace is the agent of change to deal with Jonah's anger. Now, we do not know if Jonah accepted the Lord's discipline, because The story ends abruptly. We're left to ponder. But it is very clear, I think, from verse 5, that Jonah is not where God wants him to be in terms of his attitude towards unbelievers. Just look with me, please, at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, the only things missing from that scene... Are a reclining cinema seat, a bucket of popcorn, and a hot dog. I mean, seriously. Jonah is just there, isn't he? He's waiting for judgment to fall on the evil Ninevites. And he wants the best seat in the house. You know, brothers and sisters, if you and I are angry at people who are caught in a cycle of sin. Slaves held in chains by Satan in the dominion of darkness, unable to break free, apart from the power of the gospel, which, by the way, is the original state of every single one of us here who trust in Jesus. Whether our particular style of sin is the obviously wicked variety or the rooted, deep-in-the-heart variety, there is no difference in God's eyes for all of sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God. But if our dominant attitude to unbelievers is anger, longing for judgment to fall, we will not have the right heart to be gentle ministers of the gospel of grace, which has power to rescue and transform unbelievers. Oh, the Lord will, in his goodness, he may still work through us when we're reluctant or angry or envy or judgmental, whatever it may be. I've certainly seen that in my own life many times. God has worked through me when my heart has not been right. The glory of the gospel is that whatever my state of heart or mind, he remains always and unfailingly the God of all grace. A few people have asked me recently. Jonathan, if God appoints you as minister and team leader, it's the elephant in the room. Let, let's just bring it out. If Jonathan appoints if you're appointed by God as the minister and team leader, how are you going to handle all the angry complaints? <laughs> what a good question. And I've started to pray and to ponder. Not knowing it's in God's hands what the outcome is. But here is what I have from the Lord. I'm going to share it with you. This is the Lord to me. If you receive an angry, abusive, anonymous, aggressive, offensive, offensive, or slanderous email or letter, come to the place of prayer, spread it out before me, like King Hezekiah did in Two Kings 19. Worth reading. Brilliant account doesn't end well for those who threaten God's people. Spoiler alert, but it's a good account. Ask me to minister grace and truth to whoever sent it. Ask me that in my kindness, I will lead them to repentance. And then it's done. No reply. Not a priority. No need for an email folder or paper folder entitled complaints. Bin it, trash it, shred it. There you go. Full disclosure. Or if anyone approaches you in an angry or aggressive manner with a complaint, I'll give you grace for that moment to be completely humble and gentle. But however angry they get, you must be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Silently ask me for wisdom, and I'll show you how to respond in such a way that you can help that person to see the root cause of their anger Grumbling, critical spirit, whatever it may be. Whatever it has has gripped this angry sheep's heart. And then love them. And keep loving them. And keep praying for them. And then Proverbs 20 verse 5 came to mind. The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters. But one who has insight draws them out. Father, please give me insight. I want you to know this morning that your chief shepherd and mine is passionately committed to uncovering any anger in our hearts. And many of us here, we have reason to be angry for the way that we've been treated. And he wants to get to the root causes of our anger or indeed any other emotions or feelings or attitudes or deep-rooted hurts that are stunting my growth in faith and hindering me from being a beautiful if broken, vessel for grace and truth to flow through. And you can be assured, brothers and sisters, you are in safe hands. Perfectly safe. Because the chief shepherd is also the good shepherd. He knows better than anyone else the root cause of your anger. And his Holy Spirit is the best qualified and the most experienced counselor in the world. And he doesn't charge a penny for sessions. He can help you to work stuff through. He can bring resolution, forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing. He may well bring others alongside to support you with wise counsel, spiritual insight, so that over time you can move forward in the power of the gospel and be increasingly effective as his witness and an ever more useful as a channel of his grace. One thing else I want you to be aware of, if the Lord considers me faithful and appoints me to this role, I will also be an under-shepherd to my fellow leaders, to our dedicated and hard-working trustees, to our wonderful staff team, and our passionate band of willing volunteers who serve the wider body of Christ with faithful devotion, week in and week out. And I will be as protective of them as I will be of every sheep that the Lord entrusts my care. Brothers and sisters, please let us be kind to each other. Through this process, let us be kind to each other. Let us encourage one another daily, not criticize or grumble or gossip about each other. In every conversation, will you please pray, especially if you feel angry, would you please pray, Lord, may I say only what is helpful for building others up, that it may benefit those who listen. Let me say this, I've sensed over these last couple of weeks that we may well be on the cusp of a remarkable move of God in Southampton and at above Bar Church. I may be wrong, but I think the signs are there, because fire is beginning to burn in a number of hearts. I spent time with those people those last few weeks. More people are beginning to confess sins and ask for help overcoming them, wanting to be holy. Holy. And yesterday, the Lord gave me a little glimpse of what the future might look like if we're all willing to humble ourselves and let God be in control. I spent most of my Saturday afternoon and evening on my balcony, enjoying the sun. I'm not sure if it shows. It possibly does. I was on there a long time. On my left, a 19-year-old student, um, son of a vicar, lovely, gentle young man who loves Jesus, Longing to grow in his faith and godliness. On my right, 20 year old, used to come to Above Bar Church, stopped coming when he was 12. He was involved in GSMA, wow, everything. Stopped coming and ended up enslaved to a life of alcohol, partying, drugs. Got into a very, very dark place. But you know, wonderfully, and I love this because wonderfully, he was converted away from the church. Nothing to do with Above Bar. God doesn't need us. Away from the church. So he gets all the glory. At rock bottom, he said to his mum, What should he do? And she said, You need to pray to Jesus. And that's what he did. And he's now a young man of God. He's on fire. He has helped to set my heart on fire, just spending time with him. Both of those two guys get from completely different backgrounds. 55 year old in the middle. Converted out of a dodgy background 31 years ago. Enslaved to every pleasure imaginable. And the three of us are there. Pizza. Chicken wings. I think goo desserts. I, I, I like goo desserts. It's a bit of a luxury. I think the most healthy thing on the table actually was probably Coke Zero. That just gives you an indication. <laughs> and do you know what? We, we chatted. We encouraged each other. And we ended up studying, this is by the way, this is not official working day for me. This is because Jesus put a passion in my heart. We ended up studying Romans 9. Because it just so happened that both of these guys that God brought together have a struggle with Romans 9. Who knew? Not a difficult passage of scripture. And we we chatted about it. And then we prayed. That's just a little glimpse, brothers and sisters, of what I believe God wants to do in this church. But I think the Lord Jesus may well be asking, can I trust, can I trust above Bar Church to care for the many new lands that I long to bring into my sheepfold here? And all those sheep who have wandered away that I long to bring back and restore. Will my people at above Bar Church love them tenderly and nurture them gently, not bruise them and break them, A bruised reed I will not break, says the Lord. A smoldering wick I will not snuff out. Enormous we. Finally and briefly, to love this city and see people won for Jesus and transformed by the power of the gospel. Be more concerned for the lost than your personal comfort. This is the heart of God's application of his practical tutorial in verses 10 and 11. Verse 11, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for this great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Jonah had no emotional investment in the life of the plant. Zero involvement in its development. His sole interest was that it made him exceedingly happy. It eased his discomfort. But it was all a provision of God, a gift of grace, intended to point him to the God of all grace, as indeed is every single thing that might make you and me comfortable today. Contrast that to the Lord, who has carefully knit together every man, woman, boy, and girl on this planet, each one made uniquely in his own image, with the purpose of glorifying him and enjoying him forever. Each one tended and grown by him with a passionate desire that one day they may recognize his son Jesus as the true vine into which he wants to graft them. Would you hear the Lord here? Should I not have concern for this great city of Southampton in which there are more than 250,000 people, many of whom cannot tell their right hand from their left? Our God is a very generous God. And his gracious gift should point me to the source of the gift. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider. I should be thankful that God gives me anything at all. We live in an entitlement culture. It has infected God's church. God owes me nothing. Absolutely nothing. What has made you angry this week, my brother, my sister? What has made me angry? I guess none of us would want. The causes behind our personal anger or frustrations broadcast so that everybody knows. But the Lord knows. And he understands all the root causes. He sees the big picture from every single angle imaginable. He sees injustice. He sees malpractice. He sees bullying. He sees coercive control. He sees abuse of power. And he has power to humble the proud. And you know what? He always uses it very skillfully and with impeccable timing. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we have to admit, and I would have to admit, the root causes of our anger is simply that the Lord is deliberately disturbing my personal comfort. So that I start to move out of my comfort zone. I've moved so far these last weeks out of my comfort zone, I just don't even know the way back. But I don't want to go back. Because I love this place of freedom. It's wonderful. And we can all have it if we're willing to prayerfully submit to the Lord and work with him so that he can shape and mold us for gospel service. Be in no doubt, though, that the transforming power of the gospel and the new lambs that I am now praying passionately, the Lord may be pleased to add to our number, they are going to disturb my personal comfort. They're going to disturb our comfort as a community of believers. And if that gives rise to anger or frustration, Don't be surprised if the Spirit of God finds a way to ask you, is it right for you to be angry? And if the root cause is loss of your or my personal comfort and preferences, or the things that make you and me happy, the answer is no. But then do you know what? The God of all grace will be gracious to us anyway, because that is who he is. Do you remember how Jesus expresses his concern for the lost over in Luke 13? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. But of course Jesus did not stop at words of sorrow and mourning. He stepped right out of his comfort zone, rolled up his sleeves to gather his children to him via the cross, He gave up what was most precious to him, a perfect, eternal relationship with his Father in heaven, willingly enduring the shame of being crucified like a common criminal, spat at, beaten, insulted, mocked, abandoned by his friends in his greatest hour of deepest need, and finally forsaken by his Father. But all so that you and I, and the people of Southampton, can be wonderfully reconciled to the God of all grace. My dearly loved brothers and sisters, there is only one right way to respond to such a precious, such a priceless act of self-sacrifice. Chief shepherd, lay down his life for the sheep. Go and do likewise. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul,
0: my life, my all.